Withers Talks, Family and Family Office, a podcast series that discusses various topics relating to issues associated with managing, protecting, and enhancing multi-generational family wealth. I'm Ivan Sachs, the Global Head of Withers Family Office Group. And joining me today is Megan Jones, an associate in our LA office and the private client and tax team. She advises individuals, family offices, investors, and companies on domestic and international tax planning. And her practice includes the intersection between income tax, estate, and corporate planning, given her background in investment banking and related areas. Today's podcast will focus on family offices as direct investors and trends in family offices interested in making such direct investments. Before we begin, please note that anything discussed in this podcast is for informational purposes only. We're not providing any legal advice. Megan, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, Ivan. So, Megan, uh, the first thing that I'd like to touch on is trends in family offices as direct investors. It does appear that more and more family offices across the scale from large to small are looking to a greater degree to find and make direct investments. Are you seeing that? Yeah, I think there's looking at it from two different sides. There's kind of how the investments in private companies originally started kind of on a broader scale. And then there's some current trends that are making it more attractive for the companies themselves to seek out family offices. I'm originally from Silicon Valley. And so I grew up in the land of the venture capitalists and the early venture capitalists there were people who started companies and did a great job. And a lot of them were real tech geeks, but they had this money and they weren't ready to retire. So their families and friends would invest in other companies and industries they knew really well and help those companies. They would provide a lot of guidance and wisdom just scale for those companies. But then things started getting a little bit more institutionalized and people started hiring people with MBAs and the venture funds and the private equity funds just became really these big businesses. Saw kind of in the late 1990s, some of the entrepreneurs that had made a fortune in the internet space started mirroring what those early venture capitalists had done. And they started putting money in companies like Palantir or YouTube as well was one where people were approached individually instead of in an existing fund about investing. And you also started seeing the growth of organizations like Second Market, which now is owned by NASDAQ, where the founders of these companies could start selling shares before the companies went public, which made sense because nowadays we don't go public as early as we used to. We have these unicorns who are these billion dollar private companies. On the flip side though, from the family office side, for the, the company founders, they're the perfect types of investors because a lot of family offices tend to be longer term investors when they're buying, let's say, from an organization where it's a secondary market like second market, they're buying later where they're coming in and they can see that the company is already grown. It's a certain scale. It's looking like it's going to be comfortable, but they can also come in at the angel stage or earlier stages where particularly if the family office founder has some expertise in that industry, they're providing that nurturing that you maybe won't get from a more institutional venture capital or private equity fund. As much as some of those are incredibly specialized in certain industries, they still maybe don't have that personal touch and that kind of long time frame since they also have to answer to their own investors. I think what I'm hearing nowadays from some of my friends 
who work for those Silicon Valley focused tech law firms is that specifically a lot of founders are looking to get that sort of a family office investor and really seeking them out actively. We've long heard that alternative investments partly have their advantage in being longer term lockups than more marketable investments and having more time to produce. But really, family offices are the longest term capital in many respects. And it seems like that is very attractive to direct enterprises, to the entrepreneurs themselves who want to bond with their investors and perhaps go for the longer term rather than focus on a quick sale. I think also sometimes with the institutional investors, depending on the institution, I have known company CEOs. I remember one who was sitting on a board of another company, and he said, these VCs are just pushing too hard. They're not looking really at the long term. They're looking at the short term. The CEO has grown the company to $100 million in five years, and they don't think that's fast enough. But the company's doing great. They want to kick them off. And so it's not that that's going to happen in every situation, but people have all heard those stories. Well, let's turn quickly now to some of the needs that family offices should be considering when they're dipping their toe into direct investing, particularly for the first time. What are some of the underpinnings of good advice that they need or expertise that they need to bring in with respect to legal and financial risk management? I think there's a lot of areas where they need to be very focused. If they don't have the internal capability at the family office, then they definitely need to bring in the experts who can help them. One of the issues that they could face is certain regulatory issues. You think about buying in a private company, you don't think that you have to maybe meet certain regulatory, security regulatory obligations, but unfortunately that might not always be the case. Depending on the type of exemption from the securities law that is applicable in the type of investment you're making, that might switch down the road. It might flip into a different sort as more investors come into the entity. Or let's say you do have a family office and you have a number of different entities that are following under that umbrella, let's say trust, for example, which is an area Withers does a lot of work. You need to make sure that as that investment is structured, it's not running afoul of the securities laws. But then also, if you're going to want to sell it later, sometimes it can be really easy to get into an investment, but then if you try to sell it within a certain time period, you're suddenly a broker-dealer, and now you have all these other different requirements that you didn't even think about when you were going into the investment. And how about on the financial and liquidity risk side of it, evaluating the investment in terms of its bona fides as a financial structure? When you're going into a private investment, you don't have the same sort of protections and ability to get information about that entity as you do have if you're going into, let's say, a public company stock. You know, buying Apple stock on the exchange, you can look at the 10K and learn a lot about that company pretty fast. Plus, the financials will have been audited. If you are investing in a private company, depending on the stage of the company, first of all, they probably don't have audited financial statements. If they're really early stage, they might not be able to afford audited financial statements. And so I don't want to say you're looking at it with a wing and a prayer, but it's sometimes not that far apart. At that point, you really need to take time to go through the financial statements and ask the questions, whether it's of the CEO or the CFO or the CPAs, to make sure that you understand. I had a client who had something on their balance sheet, which was basically $100,000 write-off, and we were trying to figure out what that was, and it turned out that they had a big party and they wrote off the gambling debts. 
of their top clients who they'd flown to Las Vegas. And so in that case, in that particular situation, from an investment perspective, not from a tax perspective, but from an investment perspective, that sort of disclosure is incredibly important. Because once you've built the trust and you've asked the questions, you at least know what you're getting into. And you might want to run the company differently after you've invested, but you need to know going in the risks you're taking. When you're looking about tax or liquidity, in this particular environment, we are seeing certain clients who are busting through covenants in their loans or their line of credit. They might not have the kind of liquidity that they need to meet some of the requirements under contracts that they have. They also might have tax liabilities that you didn't think about. You just assume that they filed their tax returns, they were all good, and there won't be any problems. But that isn't necessarily the case, and that's a very complicated topic. But I think taking the time to make sure that you've done the diligence on the more, what we would maybe term boring side, right, securities law, tax, finance, really targeted due diligence, and also sometimes diligence that's specific to an industry. We worked with a client who was looking at a cannabis business, family office, no experience in that area. And we did have to work with outside counsel on that because we don't do the regulatory side of the cannabis business. But the client really had no sense of exactly how complex and how easy it is to trip up on the rules in that particular industry. Someone uh, smart once told me that investing in startups and newer ventures is really investing in the people that are leading them and that the diligence on the people is also a very important part of it. How do you evaluate that? I completely agree with that. I think that's probably the best advice you could give someone who was investing in a private company because you really are investing in them and trusting them and not just whether they're ethical and whether they're a decent person and have a decent background, but whether they're the type of person that really can grow the business that they're planning on growing. Do they have that kind of expertise, the contacts? I think one of the danger signs I've always felt in dealing with entrepreneurs and I used to joke about it, it shows how old I am, but I used to joke about it as kind of the eBay story where they said, we're the next eBay or, you know, we're the next pick your hot company. Now, I guess it would probably be, you know, in a crypto space or something along those lines. But is that really practical for the industry that they're in, right? There's only one Google, there's only one eBay, there's only one Amazon. You want someone who's really realistic about the growth potential, knows the market, knows what it takes to penetrate that market and really understands where the industry is going in their space, not in someone else's space. That makes sense. Well, let's talk about some of the strategic considerations. You mentioned having knowledge or understanding the specific industry issues going in, which particularly for entrepreneurial families who've developed their wealth in one direction may give them an, an advantage in going that same direction with other direct investments. What are some other considerations that you would say are primary and important in strategy in picking direct investments? I think always knowing when you're going into the investment, when you're going to get out, why you might want to get out, and how you can get out. It's particularly important for a family office where sometimes there's more of a need for cohesion in the types of investments that the family is going to make long term. And so you want to make sure that this investment isn't something that you're stuck in forever if you need to get out. And that would be really based on the family. But that would be also building into whatever documents you're signing at the front of the transaction. So if it's a stock purchase agreement or a loan agreement, whatever sort of structure you've put in place, you want to make sure that the provisions in there allow you when you need to get out to get out. And so that could be things like if you are a minority shareholder and you want to sell your shares, what's the process? Do you have to offer those shares to the company first? 
Are you able to then freely shop it if the company turns it down? How are you going to value those shares if it's a private company? Are you going to hire a valuation firm? So things like that going into it give you the ability to think through how you're going to get out of that investment should you need to. The other thing that would be a particularly important consideration, let's say you were to buy a whole company, not just a part of a company, would be whether it's something that an investment banker might want to take and sell because investment bankers are incented mostly on the incentive fee. So for them, if they don't think it's a transaction that they could actually close, they're going to be less likely to help you sell that business. Or one of my particular pet peeves, they might take fifty dollars or $100,000 up front to try to sell the business, but there's no sort of an obligation that they actually do sell it. And that's one structure that I've seen out in the marketplace. I think also, if you are getting into one of these secondary exchanges or something that is perhaps not freely tradable, but a little bit more freely tradable because there is, quote unquote, an, an exchange where you can sell these shares, understanding what the restrictions are, because these are secondary markets. They're not NASDAQ or one of the bigger markets. And it's not like you can just trade or sell on an exchange the way you can with Apple or Google. Well, thank you, Megan. That's been a very interesting quick survey through some of the key issues that family offices should be considering when making direct investments. And I want to thank you for joining me. Thanks, Ivan. It's been a pleasure discussing this topic in our family and family office podcast series with you. To all our listeners out there, thanks for joining. And if you have any follow-up questions, feel free to reach out to us at withersworldwide.com backslash family. Thank you.